Brown Genius is a podcast in full color spectrum dedicated to providing a platform for underrepresented voices. This Chicano Picasso production is brought to you with generous support from the Arts Affinity Group. Thank you for listening. One, two, one. Many sick, many sick. One go for many drink, many drink. Diversify scope, money straight, money straight. Proper simple, human being, human being. So fresh, so clean. My mind, limousine, my quasar, so my crown, I king, my beam, so mean. My gangster lane, I bomb your scene. My people get free, root the tradition. Set the condition. Break the system. Forward transmission. Part one of our interview with Utimia Cruz Montoya was recorded on election night 2016. We emerged from the recording studio to find the news media in a state of shock over the results that were coming in throughout the American Midwest. America and the world were settling in for a long night ahead. Peace, peace. Brown Genius podcast in full effect. This is Molina Speaks, a.k.a. Chicano Picasso, here with the lovely... Cherie Brown, also known as Love Mistisa. And we have a fantastic guest with us this evening, Ms. Utimia Cruz Montoya. We will be focusing this particular episode on mestizaje, muse, and medicine. So here at Brown Genius... Our focus is to really bring to light the culture bearers, you know, the the knowledge, the wisdom, the artistry, the imagination and and creativity that lives within our mestizo peoples. You know, we live in this world in which is very much constructed along the lines of, you know, white power, white privilege, white institutions— uh, claims to legitimacy, you know, because y- you have white skin. And then there's this response, right? There's this this black power, you know, this response to white supremacy. And you end up with this dynamic where, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a black and white world. It's a black and white dialogue. And, you know, this is at the expense of our diversity in the United States, our diversity in the Americas, you know, and just the fact that this is indigenous land and Latino peoples and other mixed peoples who have indigenous roots, uh, you know, we are here and, and we're not in the shadows. You know, we, we are right here in our vibrant colors and there's more to our dialogue than the black-white dichotomy we're often faced with. So this is... Uh, it's about our brown geniuses. Uh, Ms. Uthemia, when you hear the phrase brown genius, uh, how does that hit you? What comes to mind? The first thing that comes to my mind is dirt, because there's nothing smarter, I guess. And what I'm noticing in it is it's hard for me to even create concepts around that in a way I feel comfortable with, because in such a politicized world and the background I've come from, it doesn't feel legitimate, mm-hmm. which is something that's interesting to strike me. And um, the other thing that comes up for me within that same grain of not being legitimized is, um, you know, the, the colorism that exists 
in the United States. And I know African-American or African-descendant individuals also feel that spectrum. Um, I'm a light-skinned mestiza, um, and I grew up in indigenous circles, so I was always teased for being la huerita. And um, my heart is definitely close to the indigenous ways of my many ancestors. And my song is, and my belief systems are, and my mother is, and my father is too. And and I have, um, I guess, a sadness about brownness and not being brown enough for my whole life, as you, my dear friends, have witnessed. Um, so... I guess the the biggest thing that comes up for me is um, this deep need to be present with all parts of ourselves and all parts of our ancestries in a in a reverent way, not necessarily for our ancestors or what they did or didn't do and their transgressions upon other peoples, depending on which side you're looking at when you are a mestizo, but more this... Um, need to recognize everything for the fullness in oneself and to honor the parts of oneself because if we reject any part of our ancestry we are not fully accepting ourselves and and that's something that's been really prevalent with me in my journey and specifically in my my medicine ways to really own all the parts of me so that I can be present for all the people who seek my help and also just the the lack of education in America around brown people and brown genius. And um, when I was growing up in Denver with primarily brown people, and when I would travel, by the time I got to college and I would travel a lot, people would say, Colorado is really white. And I never had that experience because I didn't grow up amongst many white communities in Colorado. And just a couple days ago... Um, Somebody told me it's election day today, so I feel a little off. Excuse me for that. And I'm sure the public will understand (laughs) why. Um, But somebody's like, Trump and Hillary are split 50-50. And I was like, there are 50% white racists in America? Mm. Boom. Holy. Whoa. I had no idea. So, um, yeah, dichotomy is everything. Yin and yang, ometeo. You know, our universe is up and down. Happy, sad man, woman, right? So um, it makes sense, but I, it just hit me in a different way. So um, brown genius, I just think of genius and, and I question like, why do we continually have to differentiate ourselves col- color-wise? Um, but clearly it's pertinent <laughs> in America. So um, I'm sorry, I don't have more of an empowering answer for you, but that's where I'm at today, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I feel like... Uh it's going to be a concept that that hits people in a funny way and that people really don't know what to think of it, you know? And that's, that's part of the, the reason for, like, utilizing this concept of brown genius because there are so many figures in American society or in world history that are white and we consider them geniuses. Right. Or you can, you know, you can put a black face or a black identity to people who you're like, oh, they were geniuses, right? But how many indigenous peoples, how many brown peoples, you know, how many people who are not black or white can we readily be like, oh, like they're brilliant, they're a genius, you know? And is it that we are lacking as mestizos in people who could be considered of like that stature? Or is, is there something about 
you know, the culture, the education, the media representation that leaves people out of the dialogue if they don't fit into the black or white narrative? Um, one thing that I think of uh, is this this concept, this definition of genius and the many different ways and forms of intelligence, intelligence and knowledge, how many ways can a being be intelligent? Uh, and when I expand my definitions of genius beyond the intellect, I often am able to more readily identify people that fit into this this scope of genius, this scope of brilliance, uh, people who are able to intuitively access, you know, the medicine that they carry in their bodies, the songs that they carry of their ancestors, um, you know, being able to receive messages in the world through dream, through active living, through... Um, through any through through many different kinds of means, but I'm able to more. Let me let me re-say that. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so when 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 I'm expanding this idea of what it means to be intelligent, to be brilliant, to be genius, I I can very easily identify a lot of brown people who are incredibly knowledge knowledgeable uh, with a with a wealth of wisdom around medicine ways around uh, organizing people around documenting uh, histories and stories it look it, it takes the form of many different things uh, and and it and it's not just a book science, intellect, genius that is praised often in the West. Um, how do we place value on what intelligence is here in the West, here in the Southwest, even here locally, here in the U.S., however you want to identify your, your locale, but, um, you know, where do you place that, that value on intrinsic knowledge? Palabra. So, Utimia, you know, we... Uh we obviously think you are you are a genius, right? And therefore, uh, <laughs> me. <laughs> therefore, you're part of uh, you know you're part of this project. Um, oh, uh, stop! No, don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. Um, so, you know, in particular, we want to talk to you about your specific uh, sense of of mestizaje, right? Of of what it means to be a mestiza woman, a Chicana woman, an indigenous woman, you know, uh, a spirit of your cultures in this particular time. Uh, we also want to talk to you about this uh, notion of muse as it relates to, to you as an artist, as a creator, you know, as a, as a, a magical being, um, this connection to the divine feminine. And we want to talk about your medicine, uh, personally, professionally, uh, the work that you do, the very important work that you do. So, can we start with the uh, the mestizaje? And and in that vein, can we um, do more of a, an introduction uh, as to who you are? And you know, we heard a little bit about you, but who you are, where you're from, and what it is that you do, and as it relates to mestizaje. Okay. Um, I, I would actually like to first go back a minute about genius. Um, 
I'm, I have I have a really hard time with systems. Um, I am my mother's daughter, as mm-hmm. they say. Um, she was a teacher in a youth detention center for a really long time. Um, very brown, very activist oriented. Um, Chicano civil rights uh, back in the day. All the all the movements before, you know, the feds put a stop to that. So when it comes to ascribing oneself to specific systems, I am not there necessarily. So as it relates to genius, I feel like what Adrian was talking about, Mr. Molina speaks, you know, you hear about all of these geniuses who are white men generally. And if there are black people who come um there, it's, it's, it's still being ascribed to by that system. So I don't necessarily have any attachment to being considered a genius by those terms, by those people. Um, and, and I am also having an issue with my duality right now, even saying that, because part of what I do believe is, is wanting to stop separatism. So it's, it's really interesting um, dialogue that goes on inside of myself to be present with everyone and holding space for all the ways that we can create ideas together and at the same time being like, yeah, but you don't legitimize me. You know, Mm. Um, my traviesura comes out in that way. So operating just as a human being with privilege, as I I do believe I have been given a lot of privilege and not necessarily in monetary way, um, but I was raised in a family that's very loving and they, we own our homes. Um, My grandparents work very hard to buy our house in downtown Denver in the 50s. So I've never been without food. I've never been without shelter. My mother very much so valued education based on her father's death very young. She had to go to college to get her social security. Um, He was a veteran. So he used to tell them, he had three girls, he would tell them, you could have the best husband in the world and you could die, he could die tomorrow. So get an education. Um, So my mom really instilled that in me and I, I was really into those accolades growing up in that institution that led me into other institutions. Um, so I'm, I guess this is a good place to, who Utimia Cruz Montoya is. So um, I was born in Denver to my mother, Deborah Montoya, and my father, Carlos de Anda Vasquez. My mother, um, her people are from New Mexico, and my father's people are from California by way of El Paso. And um, I was raised on the heels of the civil rights movement, Chicano civil rights movement. They actually call me a love child of that movement because my father was Teatro Campesino and my dad's family all ran with the um, United Farm Workers Movement. My grandfather, who recently passed in 2015, was um, Cesar Chavez's first member of the United Farm Workers Movement and his um, bodyguard and the man who said yes when Cesar Chavez had the idea about the strikes and he went undercover, my grandfather did for five years as a driver for one of the major agriculture industries and was pretty much a spy and they didn't think he could speak English, but he could. So really strong legacy in freedom fighting. Um, my mother's father was a World War II vet from New Mexico. Um, her mother was was also from New Mexico, had those witch ways. They were simple farming people, as they say. Um so I grew up with a really present space of, I guess, that cultural identity of, of being 
Chicana, Mestiza, India, not so much Latina. That came later when I started salsa dancing. <laughs> um, but um, because of the civil rights movement, my my mother had very much so embraced the Red Road and the indigenous ways. Um, in my blood, I have the um, legacy of the Arapaho, Comanche, Apache, Dene, Picuris, Tarahumara, Mexica people, and the European ancestry of the French, German, and the Spanish by way of colonization. So I always knew that there was there was a lot in there, but I identified as an indigenous person because I was raised in Denver um, in the Mexica tradition and the pan-indigenous ceremonial ways that started becoming present after civil rights and after Native Americans got the right to practice in indigenous rites of prayer and spirituality. So mm, that's who I am. So mestizaje, all right. Uh, confusion. <laughs> um, I, I feel like personally, again, like working through a lot of self-denial, self-rejection, self-hate, even because, you know, because I grew up super Chicana, like, you know, que viva la raza, and there's this oppressor, and and F them. And so, like, that was kind of my ambiance of understanding whiteness and white privilege. Um, so I was, like, very angry, but because I'm also a light-skinned woman and I can easily pass for, like, I don't know, I've gotten all kinds of different things, Middle Eastern, French, all the things, Mexican sometimes. Um, sometimes when I was in Europe, people knew right away, you're Native American, aren't you? I was like, mm. yeah. So it's like really interesting. Um, but yeah, just like a lot of confusion. And then at some point, not too recently, it, it, through my dear friend, Lila June Johnston, who's a freedom fighter, artist, amazing woman who I met at Stanford. Um, she's half Dene and half Scandinavian. And um she had a very intense ceremonial experience in the ways of her mother, her Dene mother, um, where she was in ceremony and she connected with her grandmothers of old Europe and remembered in the ceremony that they too are indigenous and wrote this really beautiful note. You can find it on Facebook. It's called How Humanity Fell in Love with Itself Once Again. And it's um pretty much just putting all out on the table the ways in which the mothers of old Europe, the witches, if you will, the medicine women, the medicine people, the indigenous people who are of the earth and of the, the drums and of the water, how they too were stripped of their lives and their medicine um, and how even if you have to go all the way back before the dark ages, um, to see them, they're still there. And there's like all of this forgiveness um, of the self based on the acceptance of the European ancestry. Um, so that really hit home hard for me. Um, and that's when I've, I've been on a long healing process because I practice healing work. I get a lot of work, um, which everyone needs. But, um, you know, when you're more, when you're very aware of the things going on in your body, you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? I just, I like, I need acupuncture every week and I need body talk and I need Olympia. I need all the things um, all the time. Um, but in doing all this work, it's all coming together because, you know, it's definitely, um, con what's the word? Not consistent, progressive, you know, like poco a poco, poco a poco, mm. like a process. Mm -hmm. There's been finally this coming to this place of being able to just fully be, without 
worrying about what the perceptions of other broken, angry people who are having this inner conflict might believe in me. And I also believe a lot of these um, systems of belief aren't just in our minds. They're like our own ancestral memories of the fact that like, I am the granddaughter of rape, you know, and, and the kind of fear and pain that happened there in that moment when that egg was conceived. And uh, so coming to terms with that by, by being forgiving of the ancestors that perpetrated the rape and being compassionate to the ancestors that were on the receiving end of the pillage. Um, it's a long journey. Mestizaje is a really intense journey. But, you know, I also am a, I have a lot of secular beliefs and I'm always thinking of my lovely, very knowledgeable, wise mother and her time as a civics teacher. You know, war is nothing new and peoples all over the world since the beginning of time have suffered dislocation and displacement and genocide and torture and, you know, humanity is not a very pretty thing a lot of the time. But a lot of the time it's so gorgeous and wonderful. So I try to like just hold space for duality in all things, especially myself. <laughs> so um, going through life in that way, um, I mentioned my maternal grandparents are from New Mexico. Um, my grandmother is from a place called Tijeras. It's about 15 minutes east of Albuquerque. And um, they fled New Mexico because of a curse. Um, back in the turn of the century, there was a lot of quote-unquote witch wars. And um, my great-grandmother, Rosita, sorry, my great-great-grandmother, Rosita, um, had some kind of, a, I guess, spell or curse put on her. And she went to another healer-type person, Curandera, and asked her, like, who did it? And she's like, well, I could tell you who did it. But when I do, you have two choices. You can either burn this witch in her house with all of her family alive at night, or you can leave and never come back. So great-grandmother Rosita chose to leave and never come back. And there's like a bunch of missing pieces in that journey. Um, but we ended up, my great-great-grandmother ended up on Ninth Street under the bridge here in Denver, where our area now Dance, where we were earlier today for a lecture. So there's that piece. So I, I was raised in the home with these um, knowings, these medicine ways um, by my grandmother and my auntie and did a lot of healing touch type stuff. My grandmother prayed a lot. She was very Catholic, um, but she also did weird things. Like when I was a kid, I was playing with my belly button a lot for some reason. And so she scolded me and then took some tobacco, got some tobacco and put her vabas, her saliva on it and stu stuffed it in my belly button and bandaged it up and then told me not to touch it. And I, I was like, okay. And then after that, I never played with my belly button again. And so little things here and there, lots of little stories. So I was raised like that. Plus I was raised in the ceremony ways doing danza azteca. So from I could dance before I could speak. And I would pray dance or dance pray because that's what the ritual is of Danza Azteca. And there's drum in the middle and there's smoke and all the dances mean something. So there's the wind dance and the earth dance and the eagle dance and the, the 
excrement dance, like to get things out. And so my language was like understanding these prayers in my body before I could speak them. And I know that that has had a really strong impact on how I practice my medicine um, and how it exists in me. So my mom met Dr. Ron Rosen um, during during the civil rights movement. Um, I believe in South Dakota, uh, Dr. Ron Rosen, they called him the Lakota Jew instead of the Lakota Sioux. Um, he passed away in 2007. He was a Chinese medicine doctor, a Jewish man from Greenwich Village. And, um, and uh, he stood in solidarity with the Native people at the Battle of Wounded Knee and crossed federal lines to offer the indigenous people medical support. He was also the um, pioneer of the street medics movement. He began street medics, so that's um, like a demonstration medicine, so tear gas and baton wounds, etc. Um, so uh, during my undergraduate education, I had wanted to go and study medicine in Africa with some Zulu priest. And I was already away um, at Stanford in California. So my mom vetoed my summer trip to Africa and said, you're going to sit clinic with Doc. And I was like, meh. And then I did. And I, I um, was his gopher, his go for this, go for that mm-hmm. in the clinic for, um, I think, a good three years in the summers after that. And then when I graduated from college, I worked for him. Um, and then he had a cerebral hemorrhage and passed away very suddenly. Um, and then I decided to go to acupuncture school because Chinese medicine is brilliant. It's That's genius. We want to talk about genius. Man, those Chinese were onto something. And that this is interesting because it relates back to my previous comment that they were never colonized in the same way. The Chinese didn't open their borders to any um, trade until the English addicted them to opium, I think, in the turn of the 18th century. So they had thousands of years mm-hmm. of their own medicine and their own ideologies and their own spiritual practices um, and observation and practice still mm-hmm. when by the time any outsiders got to them, the mm-hmm. when the outside country people came in. I've always found that very interesting, um, just the breadth and the length and the depth that to which uh, the Chinese people, the Chinese culture has been able to document their history is incredible, right. incredibly powerful to just have access to those documents mm-hmm. and that history and that knowledge and to have uh, a medicine practice that is that well documented and practiced and like tried and tested. Yeah, tried and tested, tested millennia. Like that's a really beautiful thing in a beautiful system that, you know, the world is now beginning to access and experience uh, that, you know, just this medicine that came from a particular people. Uh, It's that's that's a pretty powerful and like you said, a genius thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you look at there's there's a specific book, it's called Wind in the Blood. It's I think it's by a couple authors. I can't remember who, but um, it is a book that looks at traditional Maya medicine based on Chinese medicine, because the only way they could, quote unquote, substantiate to the status quo that there's indigenous American medicine that is, in fact, genius and works is through looking at this established Chinese medicine, um, because once again, they were never conquered and colonized and had their medicine taken, their stories taken, their histories taken from them. Um, 
So I find it super fascinating. And in my travels and studies in curanderismo um, and indigenous ways of, of healing, it's very much so akin to Chinese medicine, which I also count as indigenous, um, at least in the classics, you know? So how did this add to or complicate, uh, you know, your mestizaje, right? Like being mestiza, all of a sudden you're, you're not just a, a Chicana with these European and indigenous roots who's trying to make sense of your path and your culture and what it means to be you. But now all of a sudden you're on this path to studying uh, medicine from China, right? Like, <laughs> like, well, I think it's really interesting because the Chinese medicine came to me through my native family. You know, even though Doc wasn't a native man himself, like he's buried on the Lakota Res with the chiefs because he was family to them. And um, my mom is the one who like set me up with that. And so it it felt very close to home. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Doc's son texts me today because he's on his way to Standing Rock, you know, and wants support. Um, so it's, it's not, it, it didn't seem very far from home, but I definitely, wow, this is complicated. <laughs> um, so there's, there's like these huge issues of appropriation, right? Huge issues of appropriation going on in America. Um, specifically white people appropriating native and black culture. And it's interesting for me when all this stuff was going on, um, after I came back from China, because my last year of acupuncture school, I studied in China. And um, it was so crazy because I came back from China and I felt completely alienated by the race warring. Um, because in China, and God knows I didn't have that much understanding of the politics and the fact that Chinese don't really have voices to speak out against the communist regime. Um, you know, can't even get Facebook in China. But... Um, but I was just a white girl Ren. I was an outside country person. And my best friends there were a French girl who was also studying Chinese medicine. And my friend who I um, stayed with for a while, whose name is Shashi. And he is a yoga master Rastafari from Jamaica in his 50s. So we would like hang tight. And then all of our Chinese yoga girlfriends. Um, and they were just so cool and kind and none of this race stuff ever played a thing. But I remember putting on a shipao, one of the traditional Chinese dresses and walking down the street and it like occurring to me like, oh my God, am I appro I'm appropriating, I'm appropriating their culture right now. And then all of a sudden I was like, I just spent four and a half years in Chinese medicine school and I'm going to call myself a Chinese medicine practitioner or doctor. So all this stuff started coming up. Um, where it really hit home for me, honestly, um, the confusion or the appropriation or the discomfort was um, in, in the midst of my Chinese medicine ed education. I took some time off and I um, got a yoga teacher training. And it was there that I really felt the disparity because I was the only brown person in the entire yoga teacher training. And there were like 25 of us. Even our teachers were all white. Um, and... I was like, this is like an ancient Indian culture. And then I was reading a lot of philosophies that my my yoga teacher friend Shashi had been given me, um, had given me. And uh, I was like, this doesn't make sense. And just seeing like the prices and the swag and, you know, all this stuff. And then just like the festival culture all up in yoga. And everybody's like, oh, I just got my new flu. And did you see my feather earrings? And like, I wanted to puke all over everyone. <laughs> 
We're on the record. (laughs) (laughs) It was really, really trying times Um, for me. And and especially, and I know I keep coming back to this, it's clearly an issue for me, especially being a light-skinned Chicana. Like people didn't realize that I am a brown woman and I come from a brown culture and I come from a marginalized story. that gives me all of these triggers. And then I also have this elite education where I saw all this privilege and I'm part of that privilege. And then that gives you a whole other set of triggers. So like being stuck between a rock and a hard place um, at the same time, still feeling rather alienated from my own um, culture that I grew up in because, because people of color generally are disenfranchised in a lot of ways. So a lot of the people I grew up with as kids, you know, pregnant, by 15 and and bartending careers and you know a lot a lot of this other stuff and I'm coming off of this like elitist education going like where do I fit and now I'm home and and I can't really have a conversation with my family in the same way I would before I had all this worldly knowledge um Mm -hmm. And no, I don't want to sit around with everyone who I used to hang out with and like be stoned 24-7 because unfortunately, disproportionately, people of color are also addicted to a lot of different things. Um, not even to mention the the ways in which marginalized people are thrown around in this society by the medical institution and the the prison institutions. And all. so there's all this separatism for me from my culture just based on institutionality in general as opposed to like Chinese medicine, school education. Um, If there's anything I can say about my Chinese medicine education is that it really brings you you to you um, and to the world at a larger view, a macroscopic view of the world. You learn about the five elements and you learn about yin and yang and you learn about how this applies and how the seasons affect you and how foods affect you and how stagnation affects you and how the emotions affect you. So it's very universal. It's like this doesn't this doesn't only happen to brown people or white people or black people. This happens to people depending on their different inputs in the world around them. Um, so it was it was a, it's been such a tool in my life to be able to assess individuals and also like cultures because there are cultural propensities as well. Um, right. But it, it definitely brought me closer to myself as a human being, as opposed to pulled me further away from myself as a Chicana. And I guess made me closer to myself as a Chicana too, because there also aren't a lot of people of color in Chinese medicine school. Um, And it was always very, very uh, present that there was a spiritual aspect that was not present in Chinese medicine school because of Mao and the cultural revolution. Um, basically, when communism took over China, they ran out all the spiritual practitioners or murdered them. So there's a lot of like esoteric acupuncture type people in like San Francisco and in Japan and in New York um, in the 1950s, 60s around. They were like pushing everyone out. So TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, as it's taught in the United States, is very um, it's it's very Western in a way. It's like point, symptom, herb, symptom, 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 points, herbs. You know, it's not like if you're looking at like five element acupuncture, esoteric acupuncture, there's this whole element of like the the space between heaven and earth and the divine contracts that are created when you come into earth and your primordial essence and like where that's from and how to cultivate it and these like sexual powers and all these things that are extremely, um, the only word that's coming is esoteric, but very spiritual. Um, so, Did you say sexual powers? 
Yeah. <laughs> Is that a segue into Muse? <laughs> I love you. Um. <laughs> Um, yes, I was, yeah, I was yeah. gonna ask about, um, don't, now I don't even remember. <laughs> now we're just all thinking about sexual powers. Um, yes, it's, it's, important, use, no? oh, okay. it's, it's, it's important, it's an important topic. Clearly, Adrian, <laughs> do you have something you want to say? say something about, about that, mister? No, 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 I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just curious, just thinking about, uh, the connection between. Mind, body, spirit, health. We're talking about medicine. You know, we're talking about all these different things. And uh, one of the reasons you're here is because you are uh, our muse. <laughs> Try <laughs> to save yourself. Our, save I'm, yourself. I'm talking about the community. You know, like so many people within the community see you as like a magical person. You know, see you as somebody who holds like a lot of energy and knowledge and it's like it's pretty it's pretty well-rounded you know i mean you're you're a beautiful woman you um clearly have like a lot of sensual knowledge body knowledge in addition in addition to you know intellectual knowledge spiritual knowledge you know so um, you know, I'm partially just being playful, but I think that that comes into the whole aspect of muse, you know, and I'm like, ooh, did you just say sex? Tell us about that. Right. <laughs> but, you know, it's um, like, you know, the muse yeah. is is somebody who, um, you know, can can play that trickster role and is a playful person, you know, and and kind of knows how to shake things up a little bit. And I guess I, I really see you in that light. Well, um, you know, something about being a mestiza is I was raised Catholic and European colonization really destroyed women's ability to be present in our sexuality and in our sensuality. Um, so much shame, shame in that space. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely something that was huge for me in, in Chinese medicine and also studying yoga and those Eastern traditions. Um Kama Sutra, the laws of longevity, the Taoist practices of longevity, um, just understanding how sacred sexuality is. What do you mean by that? Sexuality is is sacred. Well, it's we don't, we don't it's, see it's a, a tool lot of for that. transcendence. I mean, we, don't, so, we don't see a lot of that if you in think, popular culture. So what, what are you talking about? I'm talking about I'm talking about the place of connection. So um, I mean, we're all here because somebody had sex, right? It creates life create life with our loins. So how could that be something ugly or shameful? Um, so Chinese Taoist sexual practices, the idea is to retain your jing or your primordial life essence. We all have a certain amount and character of this given to us upon conception from both of our parents, and it's stored in your kidneys. And throughout your life, you use this um, for, for everything. Um, that is your jing chi, your essence chi, your, your primordial reserves of chi. You also augment that in your, your life, your daily life with your receiving chi, like what you eat and what you breathe. Um, the Chinese character for chi is made up of the radicals for vapor or steam or air and rice. So chi energy is literally what you breathe and what you eat or what's around you. 
So I tell a lot of my students, I teach classes sometimes, um, that it matters who you who you see when you walk into a room. What air are they carrying? Have you ever been in a place um, right after someone just got in a fight and you walk in after it's over and you feel it in the air, right? These things all make an impact on our chi. Um, so your jing, you have a certain amount of it and, and you don't get to choose that. That's you know, the age of your parents, the state of your parents, were they drunk? Was it a full moon? Were it the stars? Was it the winter? Was it a storm? How did your spirit come here when your parents conceived you? That's what your jing holds. And so, um, for instance, you see a higher prevalence of of developmental disabilities in children whose parents are older. You also see a higher prevalence in um, in injuries from vaccinations and routine things in children of parents who are older. And from my Chinese medical understanding, that is because there are lesser jing reserves in these children because of whatever their parents had already undergone in their lives by the time they conceived them. So it's a it's a strong argument for early conception. Um, but that's not the only thing that matters. Some people who have traumatic events during gestational periods also have children with developmental disabilities. And some older parents who have a lot of consciousness, a lot of love, or they have good jink, give birth to the most amazing children in their later years, like they got practice or something, mm-hmm. you know? So nothing is... Nothing is set in stone in Chinese medicine. Everything is different for everyone based on our specific constitutions at birth. Um, so that with that as a background, we want to restore our jing. Jing restoration is huge in Taoist longevity practices. And the way you restore your jing is not spending it everywhere. So men spend their jing by ejaculating. Women spend their jing like a teensy, eensy, weensy little bit in ejaculation, but more so in gestating and giving birth to children because they literally are living off of your jing and your your guqi, your essence, or I'm sorry, your gathering chi, like your what you receive over your lifetime, so your food, etc. That's why it's really important to eat a lot when you're pregnant so it doesn't deplete so much jing. Um, so with that in mind, these longevity practices, the idea is to orgasm without ejaculating um, for both men and women, but more so for men, and that you can actually get there but not expel your jing and you, you're supposed to breathe it in and up your spine, like in the cerebral spinal fluid, and therefore create like eternal essence. So you hear these kind of, um, I guess, horror stories, you can call them, of these empresses who would basically like, or I think the idea of vampire comes from this age old concept as well. Like people who like literally steal your energy. Um, But there are stories of empresses, these goddesses who did these longevity practices and you have to practice on yourself. You have to like learn your body and breathe and do these deep breathing techniques so they can actually feel themselves ovulate and this is like in the classic text, right? They can feel themselves ovulate, stop ovulation because when you have your period as well, you lose jing, um, you lose your essence and they can like not ovulate and not have their period. And these same women who are masterful of their bodies like that would go and choose these beautiful young suitor men. And these women are old already. They don't look that old because they're retaining their jing and they go and have sex with these young men, but they're not going to get pregnant because they know where their ovulation cycle is and they take their jing and this young jing like gives them longevity so there's like entire there's a lot of books 
on this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but it's really, really interesting. I have not personally yet mastered the Taoist sexual longevity <laughs> practices. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's always room to learn. <laughs> you got time. I got, I got some time. Anything else about that? Mr. Speaks. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, you know, we may have to have you back for part two. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, so like, you know, sensuality, sexuality comes up with respect to Muse. And, you know, the, the, the depth of your knowledge on like the body and the mind and the spirit, you know, it's, um, it's impressive, you know. And so we find ourselves talking about... Um, these very mystical but really deep practices of the body, these learned practices of the body. Uh, but I guess I want to ask you, like, aside from sexuality, you know, or intercourse or, you know, this whole conversation, like, I know that the, the theme of, of Muse is important to you, you know. Can you talk a little bit about what muse is and what roles you feel you play as a muse for other people, right? And what do you seek out when you're looking for your own muses? And it doesn't just have to be romantic, but, you know, we're talking art, culture, creativity. We're talking about just the, the juicier aspects of life, right? Like, juicier aspects. Yeah, tell us about um, muse. Well, so my business name because um, I'm a grown-up now, I have a business, apparently, um, is called Muse in Medicine. And that was inspired by Rumi's quote, we never hear the inward music, yet we are all dancing to it nevertheless. So the idea is that whatever's going on inside of us, and this is very holistic healthcare um, oriented, whatever's going on inside of us is the tune we're going to be dancing to, right? It's what's going to play on the outside, of us. So Muse In, when I made that my name, um, it was about going in. It was about muse yourself within. Um, And also uh, this idea from all of my thoughts, where I come from, how I come, how my medicine comes, is that in in my patients and in the society, so many people are so unhappy. They hate their jobs. They hate their wives. They hate their you know, five kids when they're screaming at the same time, you know, whatever, whatever it is, they're, they're deeply unhappy. And when you're deeply unhappy, you're not going to be well, period, you know, so we can go on and talk about like physiological causes of things, but everything is spiritual, everything is emotional, everything is mental, and everything is physical, you cannot separate them at all. So compartmentalization of wellness is not full, it's not whole, it is not really healing anything. Um, so when I talk about muse, I'm also talking about how do you become inspired in your own wellness? How do you become um, a cheerleader, if you will, for yourself and your pro- your your inner processes? So um, muse in medicine or go into that medicine. How How is medicine going to excite you? And so much of what we've lost in our wellness space is the ability to be inspired. So um, that's that's what. That's where that comes from. And then it was my mom who she was like, oh, you're the muse in medicine. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think of that. You know, and that's I guess that's how it comes off to most people, which is really interesting to me because I never intended for that. Um, But uh, 
Yeah, this inspiration piece is huge. Um, a lot of the time, depending on people's pulses or what comes up, a lot of the time I'm like, so do you make anything with your hands? What are you doing to, what makes you happy? You know, what what, what fills your heart? What fills your soul? Um, sometimes I'll suggest that, you know, I'll be like, what do you like to do to make? People are like, oh, I like to make these little trinkets that you can hang on Christmas trees. I'm like, cool. Have you made any of those lately? Or, you know, different things like that. Do you like to knit? Do you like to cook? Restoring these processes of start to finish of creation, restoring the processes of creation. Cause a lot of us have stopped creating because instead we're working some nine to five for and someone there else. There goes Eugene. And there's Karl Marx alienation from one's hands, mm. the work of one's hands. So I'm a big communist, really. <laughs> Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> um, uh, so then my own musings, um, you know, I, I was born a dancer and a singer. So I sing and dance for happy. That's where my happy place are. Um, I had a, a reading from a brother man who does angel kind of stuff. You know, I, I have a lot of mystical friends. And um, he told me, when your song is your north. Like when, when I'm out here, you know, election day, whatever, like when I, when I come in, when I sing is where I find who, how, who and how, um, I guess that's how I interpret it. But, um, dancing too, like I said, my first languages were prayer through the danza. So, um, that's where I get mine. And, you know, I've been known to get excited in romance a few times. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I actually, I, my birthday's on Christmas Day, and I was just reading a birthday book, and it was like, you're always searching for that next heightened experience, and that's very much so true about me. I'm like, little things, like, oh, clean my desk, how about I just go drum and dance until I'm sweaty and excited about the world, you know, and <laughs> story of my life. So there, there's your muse for you. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's a great segue into, uh, you know, us being able to experience that north of yours, the your north of of song, your gift of song. Um, it's very much so uh, a significant part of your medicine, just as someone who has experienced your medicine personally. Um, that song medicine is, is very much so deeply rooted in, in, in its magic and, and uh, we would be very grateful you would share a bit of that magic with us and the world. Sin, 
London since Lali. Hey Anna, hey Anna, hey Anna, hey Naomi. Hey Anna, hey Naomi, hey Anna, tota zindona. Y 
Brown Genius. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and spread the word. You can find us at browngeniuspodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Brown Genius is hosted by Molina Speaks and Cherie Love Mestiza Brown. Produced by Rodney Sino Cruz. <laughs>